So for, for the last few weeks, Pastor Ron took us through a very good study on the penalty of sin. And uh, also through the provision for sin through the work of Jesus Christ. Now today we're going to be discussing the topic of what happens when a Christian sins. I remember a time uh, when I was walking through downtown Orlando on a Saturday night when the nightlife is at its busiest. And while many people were walking through the streets and coming in and out of the nightclubs, I heard a man doing some open air preaching and he drew a crowd around him and I was interested in seeing how that was going for him. And so I got closer to the crowd and the preacher had some friends handing out tracts and speaking to people on a one-on-one basis. And I was impressed by the boldness of the preacher, but something threw me off. I heard one man from the crowd yell to the preacher, how are you telling us that we are wicked and evil? Are you really going to pretend like you don't struggle with sin? The preacher responded to the man by saying, nope, sinning was my old life. And the guy responds, oh, please, do you mean to tell me that you don't struggle with common sins like lust? Said the man in the crowd. And uh, the preacher responded, nope, I'm married. (laughs) Uh... I only desire my wife. And the man in the crowd shook his head and walked away as if he felt he was wasting his time. Besides, if the preacher won't be honest about this, then his message can't be trusted either. Now, when I heard this dialogue between them, I thought to myself, something about what the preacher man was saying was a bit misleading. And as much as I appreciated his boldness to go out in the middle of the crowd in downtown, and call men to repentance, his lack of honesty about the reality of indwelling sin, even for believers, was not truthful. Now, if the preacher honestly doesn't struggle with moments of lust, hey, then by all means, he is justified in his response. But the man in the crowd was trying to make the point that even the preacher should recognize his own need for mercy and his own need for uh, the grace of God. Yet the preacher spoke as one who seemed to believe that he has, quote-unquote, arrived, like Paul would say. Someone who lives sinless, speaking as someone who is above the law of God. But is this the case? Do Christians sin? I would hope by now that you know that the answer is yes. If you spend enough time with me, uh, you'll probably catch a few here and there. Uh, But yes, the answer is yes, Christians do sin. And when a person becomes a Christian, it does not mean that they have entered into a state of sinlessness. In the 19th century, with the holiness movement, I'm not sure if you guys ever heard of the holiness movement, various groups began emerging from the Wesleyan strand, emphasizing this kind of doctrine of sinless perfection. A common venue for this camp was the camp meeting. This is something that they would do. The camp meeting were like revivals where the preachers urged hearers to receive the baptism in the Holy Ghost towards pure holiness. And again, this is not not biblical, but this was happening. And out of the camp meeting venue grew many denominations, including some of the things that Pentecostals do, uh, the Church of God, Church of Nazarene, uh, Christian Missionary Alliance, the CMA, Full Gospel Church, the Assemblies of God, 
some of those still hold to that kind of uh, teaching. Many leading TV preachers associated with the word of faith tradition uh, originated in these kinds of institutions. Joyce Meyer, for example, how many of you have heard of Joyce Meyer? Okay, thank you, sir. Uh, <laughs> Joyce, Meyer, jo Joyce Meyer, for example, preaches that she is not a sinner. Now, I'm, I'm not the type of Christian that finds satisfaction in bashing on other, other people. That's not the type of person that I am. But I thought just for this once, um, I'd share this because it's important. Joyce Meyer says, and I quote, I am not a sinner. That is a lie from the pit of hell. That is where I were. And if I still was, then Jesus died in vain. I'm going to tell you something, folks. I didn't stop sinning until I finally got it through my thick head. I wasn't a sinner anymore. And the religious world thinks that's a heresy and they want to hang you for it. But the Bible says that I am righteous. And I can't be righteous and a sinner at the same time. End quote. Now, Joel Olstein, how many of you know Joel Olstein? He seems to agree with the same thing. And again, I repeat, I'm not the type of person that likes to just go ahead and bash on people recklessly and find satisfaction in doing that, but I thought I'd share. Joel Olstein says, and I quote, Well, you say, Joel, we are just all old sinners saved by grace. This is people telling him. And Joel says, no. The truth is, we were old sinners, but when we came to Christ, we are not sinners anymore. You may make some mistakes, I don't know what that means, mistakes, but that doesn't make you a sinner. You've got the very nature of God on the inside of you, end quote. Those are his views. Now, that's just to name a few. If you have been a Christian long enough, you might have already faced must uh, much misunderstanding from the outside world, maybe from people at work or people you meet. A lot of people think that that's what we think we are, people who, you know, we come to Christ, we become affiliated with this religion, and all of a sudden we're sinless people. Those, are the outside, those outside of the Christian faith tend to misunderstand the heart of Christianity, which the heart of Christianity is forgiveness of sins, right? Not complete elimination of sin, at least within, within us, within our body, within our flesh. And uh, at least until Jesus comes, right? When Jesus comes, that will be taken care of. But in the meantime, Christianity is not about the elimination of sin within yourself. It's about the forgiveness of sins. And in an effort to feel a sense of victory, many Christians try to be clever in their response to the world's misunderstanding of Christianity. And they end up making statements about sin that are not true to the Bible. The Bible does teach that believers do fall into sin and are always capable of falling into sin, yet the true victory is seen not in complete sinlessness, which we cannot obtain until Jesus returns, but rather the victory is seen in the true victor, which is Jesus Christ, who is the true sinless one, who redeems us and guarantees eternal life and a future sinless state. So if you're new to Christianity, that's, that's, a, that's something that we really want to drive into you, that what it means to be a Christian is not a person who all of a sudden is this, you know, person without sin. It's a person who have received forgiveness. Now, one thing we've learned through the series on, the, on this topic of sin that we've been going through is that all sin, whether small or big, or big places man automatically 
You know, once you sin, and by nature you do so, places you automatically into a state of guilt before God. Primarily through his union, or primarily through your union with Adam. And also your own guilt of sins that you've done on your own with your inherited sinful nature. This means that apart from union in Christ, we would all be destined for eternal condemnation. In other words, if you're not a Christian, if you haven't been united in Christ through faith, your, uh, your future looks like eternal punishment. Now the question for today isn't, what happens to mankind when they sin? We know that. They are destined for doom. That's not the question. Uh, today, the question is, what happens when a Christian sins? A Christian, a believer, someone who's already in Christ. What happens to them when they sin? And there is a difference between believers when they sin and an unbeliever when they sin. And so that's, that's the topic for today. And I'm going to talk about it in three points. Uh, and if you have a handout, the point number one, uh, which I'm going to discuss now, is what happens to our salvation? So when a Christian sins, what happens to his salvation? Is it affected in any way? We're going to talk about it. Point number two, what happens to our fellowship with God? So when you sin, does your fellowship with God uh, get changed? Does something happen with your fellowship with God? And point number three, um, after we discuss one and two, we want to talk about the dangers of false conversions. And you'll see how that ties into everything um, as, we, as we go through it. So let's look at point number one. What happens to our salvation when we sin? So we see in the scriptures that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. You see that in 1 Corinthians 15, 3. Actually, uh, if you have a Bible, can someone read that one out loud? 1 Corinthians 15, 3. Thank you, brother. Amen. So that, that's pretty clear in Scripture, right? Uh, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture. So first and foremost, we're Christians because Christ died and paid the penalty for our sins. That's pretty clear. But in addition to that, God sent Jesus to die for our sins. But also, not only did he die for our sins, but as Christians, we're called to not continue in a lifestyle of sin. You see that in Romans 6, 1 through 4. Can someone read Romans 6, 1 through 4? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Thanks, Lloyd. So, therefore, even, even though the penalty for our sins have been paid for by Christ, we receive salvation with gratitude, and we obey the command to forsake a lifestyle of sin and walk in newness of life. So just because we've been saved, God paid for our sins, past, present, and even our future sins. When you're saved, God saves you un into the body of Christ. He saves you to be a people of God. 
And when you're saved as a people of God, one of, one of the uh, commands as a person who's saved, as a person who belongs now to, to God because you've been purchased by Christ, one of the commands is to obey him, right? To obey his law, obey his commandments. And, and so we're called to live holy even though your sins have been paid for. So um, with that said, this by no means signifies that in our conversion, we become sinless people, right? It just means that we're commanded to, to obey. Uh, but again, it doesn't mean that our sin has been, um, our, our ability to sin has been completely removed from us. In fact, we see many instances in scripture where indwelling sin is still experienced by the apostles in the New Testament. And I'll show you in scripture. Let's look at 1 Timothy 1, 15 through 16. Can someone find that and read it? Yeah, so notice in the end of that verse, in uh, verse 15, how Paul says, of whom I am the foremost. So when he's talking about sin, he's talking about himself, he's saying, of whom I am the foremost. Some versions, I don't know what version you have, but some, some say, of whom I am chief. He's referring to himself as the chief of sinners. Now notice that he isn't speaking in past tense, but he's speaking in the present tense. This shows that he considers himself to be the chief of sinners all while still being saved. Paul also went on to talk about the real struggle of a Christian with indwelling sin. And you see that in Romans 7. Uh, so let's look at Romans 7, verses 21 through 25. Can someone read that passage if you get it? So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members an Another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the sin, to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Amen. Yeah, so here we see Paul describing the reality that sin is still a battle for the Christian even though he has been saved through faith in Christ. With that said, let's think about the question of this lesson. What happens when a Christian sins? But more specifically, going with point number one, what happens to our salvation when a Christian sins? The Bible teaches that when a Christian sins, his or her legal standing before God is unchanged. It's untouched. Nothing happens. He or she is still forgiven. Isn't that interesting? The reason for this is because salvation is not based on our merits, but is a free gift of God. You see that in Romans 6, 23. I'll go ahead and read it. It says, for the, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So again, notice the word free in this passage, this indicates that nothing from our part contributed to the purchasing or obtaining of eternal life in Christ Jesus. 
we didn't pay for it. We didn't do anything. We didn't add to it. Um, we didn't merit that salvation. This was a free gift, entirely free. Another verse that speaks on that is Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. Can someone read that? Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no man, so that no one may boast. Hmm. Now, a lot of times we think, man, free gift from God, that's too easy. But if you think about it, if it was too easy, why is it that um, many don't come? That's because man still has pride. He wants to be the controller of his own life. But by all means, we see here in the scripture that it is a free gift from God. Um, and the, in the scripture, we see that those whom God chooses to save has never been based on merit. Never. And, and never had anything to do with man or his contribution to receiving salvation. Like Pastor Ron said last week, God did not look into the world and say, you know, this person meets my qualifications and therefore I'm going to save him. Before anyone would do anything good or bad, God in his wisdom elected according to his own choosing and not our deeds. Look with me at Romans 9. Let's go to Romans 9, uh, verses 6 through 12. And in this passage you'll see the way God, since the beginning has chosen people. Romans 9, 6, 1 through 12. Whoever gets it, you can read it. Yeah. yeah. You got it. Can you read 13? As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Thank you, Ron. So, keeping in mind that God's choosing has never been based on our works, we apply the same principle when it comes to abiding in Christ. In other words, because it wasn't our works that gained for us our salvation, works, therefore, cannot cause us to lose our salvation, right? Now, usually when a covenant right, a promise or covenant or contract is made between two parties, like a marriage, for example, it requires covenant keeping from both parties, right? When you have a contract, it, the terms are there, and it requires both parties to be faithful to the terms. And the covenant or whatever uh, contract that you make can be broken when one party breaks their vows. However, in this new covenant with God through Christ, we as sinners are more than often breaking this covenant all the time. We sin against the Lord in many ways, yet Christ 
Check this out. Christ takes it upon himself and bears our sin. So Jesus then becomes the covenant keeper for both parties. He sustains the whole covenant, both his terms and our terms. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? That's a gospel. That we are married to Christ, right? And we fail him, we fail God every day in many ways. What sustains the covenant, what keeps these promises are not us. It's Jesus' faithfulness. And of course, we, we try to model that even on, in earthly ways, right? We model that in our marriages, right? When I got married, of course, the Bible has expectations for the wife, and the, and, and the Bible also has expectations for the husband, right? But when we come, we come with the gospel in mind, right? We get married, and we have the gospel in mind, and therefore, when my wife fails in, in, in her uh, terms, I carry it upon myself and continue with the, with the covenant, right? That's a model of the gospel, and that's what we ought to do in, in our covenants um, here on earth. We model Christ in that way. And Christ is actually doing this with our salvation, right? We fail God in, 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 in our terms, and Christ is carrying it on, his behalf, on, on our behalf. And so Christ becomes the covenant keeper for both parties. He sustains the whole covenant, both his terms and ours. Now, with that in mind, this is, what, this is what is happening when Christians sin. Although they are born again and are commanded to live holy and obedient, they are kept by Christ. 1 John 2.1. I'm going to read it. It says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So you see, we're still commanded to be obedient, to be part of this covenant with God, to obey his commandments, be married to, to Christ. But when we fail, the Bible says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So we see in that passage this command not to sin. However, if we do, we, are, we who are born again have an advocate with the Father who is Christ. This is another way of saying that we do not lose our justification just because we have fallen in sin. However, one of the works of the Holy Spirit, and this is a test to see whether or not you are truly a believer, but one of the works of the Holy Spirit indwelling in us is the conviction of sin, right? This, this, uh, this, this internal testimony that tells us that what we're doing is disobedient to God. Um, and this indwelling uh, Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, which keeps us in repentance, causing us to desire a life of obedience to God. So as Christians, we're not looking at these terms as, an, as something abstract, and we read what the Bible says on how to be saved, and so we live by it. No, uh, there's an actual change when you're, bo when you're born again. When you, when you are uh, born again in Christ, uh, applies his righteousness unto you through the Holy Spirit, it's, it's not that you just joined a religion. The work of the Holy Spirit affects your heart and you change, right? All of a sudden you have a desire for his word. All of a sudden you have a desire for his people. Um, when you do fall, you do have a desire to uh, seek after that relationship. You want that uh, reconciliation back with God. You, you, you fall on your knees constantly praying and asking God, restore this relationship, forgive me for my sins, help me to live uh, according to your ways. Uh, and John 16, 8, if, if you have your Bible, look at John 16, 8. Can someone read that passage? And when he comes, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Thank you. So 
you see the work of the Holy Spirit here. It says, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So there we see that when Christians sin, um, the work of the Holy Spirit is to bring this truth out, to cause us to feel that conviction and bring us back to our knees um, and unto God. So again, when a Christian sin, our legal standing before God, untouched, unchanged. If God has truly saved you through the work of Christ. Any questions on that before we get to point number two? Yes, sir. I just had a comment. Sure. I think it was Ecclesiastes 7, where uh, that's one verse I cling to. to mm-hmm. explain this to uh, some people at my job and they have questions that, you know, there's not a righteous man who does not sin. Right. Um, Amen. That verse, that's one thing. Yeah, that's a great reminder, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Anyone else? Okay. Let's go. Uh, let's look at point number two. What happens to our fellowship with God? Okay. So first we looked at uh, what happens to our salvation. Now we look at our relationship with God and what what happens to our fellowship when we sin. Now, even though our legal standing before God is unchanged when we sin, that doesn't mean that sin doesn't affect us at all. When we sin as Christians, our fellowship with God is disrupted, okay? Now, God never ceases to love us. However, when we sin, he is displeased with us. This shouldn't sound foreign to us, right? Because even as human beings, it's possible to love someone and be displeased with that person at the same time, as any parent will attest, um, or, or a wife or a husband. We know this to be true about God because Paul tells us that it is possible to grieve. Okay, grieve is a characteristic that you attribute to a person, a person with feeling, a person with uh, attributes, not, not just this um, idea that the Holy Spirit is a power. No, the Holy Spirit is a person. It's God, the third person of the Trinity. And Ephesians 4.30 tells us, and I'll read it, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So it's possible to grieve God, right? And it says so uh, in that passage. So again, keep in mind that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity and God himself. And the Bible tells us that he dwells within believers. Therefore, when we sin, we suppress the Spirit's leading in our lives. And what we do is we submit our members in obedience to that which comes from the flesh. We just traded uh, places there. Uh, The Holy Spirit is what we're commanded to be led by in all our life, in all our decisions, in all our ways. And when we sin, what we're doing is we're suppressing the leading of the Holy Spirit and we're allowing our flesh to take over, right? And the Bible tells us that the acts of the flesh should be obvious. How do you know when someone's uh, grieving the Holy Spirit? The Bible tells us that it should be obvious, okay? Galatians 5, 19 through 25. Let's look at that passage. Galatians 5, 19 through 25. Can someone read that?
Amen. So in this passage, we can see the difference between the fruit, right, that which comes out of us, the fruit, when you're being led by the flesh, and also you'll see the fruit when you're being led by the Spirit. And again, in the beginning, you see now the works of the flesh are evident. Uh, Some versions would say the works of the flesh are obvious, um, and they ought to be. Uh, Even the world can see the difference between the fruits of the spirit and the fruits of the flesh from, uh, from a distance or, or to some degree. So what, what, what is Paul commanding in this passage? Well, first, he wants us to know this, the difference. He wants us to know the difference. And sometimes when we're involved in the Christian life and we're uh, once in a while we're being led by the spirit and sometimes we fall back and, f- and feel that we're being led by the flesh and we often forget the difference. But Paul is Showing us in this, in, this, in this passage, he's commanding us to know the difference. And this is why he first lists the fruits of the flesh and says afterwards that these kind of people are not people of the kingdom. That's why he warns us that they will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, Paul is calling the church in Galatia specifically, and of course to us as we apply it, he's calling the church to examine themselves. Uh, what he does, notice what he does not say or what he's not trying to say is sort of a list of do's and don'ts. He's not trying to give a list of do's and don'ts. Hey, you people, stop doing these things and start doing these things. That's not what he's saying. It's not a list of do's and don'ts, but rather he's bringing to question whether or not the people, his audience, um, are, are people who are being led by the Spirit or are people who are being led by the flesh. It's pretty easy, and that's the question that, that we ought to ask ourselves. Are you being led by the Spirit, or are you being led by the flesh? In other words, as believers, our actions, every little thing that we do, are merely a result of our allegiance. So the core issue is the allegiance part. Uh, it's not necessarily the, the, the other specifics. The, 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 the um, actions that we do are merely a result of our allegiance, either to the desires of the flesh or our allegiance to the leading of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And this should serve as a call for us as well. And and here, again, I'll ask you, are you a person who is usually led by the flesh? In what ways are you being led by the flesh? Let's talk about it. How is your, uh, and then looking at the list of, of fruits of the flesh, how is your sexual purity like? How is your heart in terms of idolatry? Has, has, your identity become over, has your identity been overcome by your interest in a particular person you admire or culture that you admire? Has your identity been overcome by your favorite TV show or actor or musician or author? Have you found yourself envious or jealous of others making it hard to applaud them when they succeed at something that you don't? Does anger often overcome you? Again, these are just some things to think about. Now, thankfully, God doesn't just leave us hoping for the best in in these kind of fruits. God gives us a command, and we see that in verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. In other words, since we have the Spirit of God in us, let us submit to the direction that the Spirit is leading us to. And we know that from the Bible, the Holy Spirit is leading us to the truth of God, which is recorded 
finally in his word, right? So it's not just this thing that we tap into and we say, well, the spirit is leading me in this direction, the spirit is leading me in that direction. Um, I remember R.C. Sproul uh, talking, uh, he said something that was pretty funny. Um, he said that in the past he's had many charismatic believers come to him and say, you know, I think the spirit is calling you over to my city to come and be a pastor here or a speaker here. Um, and then he would have other pastors say, hey, I'm, uh, I, I think the spirit is telling me that you are meant to come over here in Oklahoma and be the pastor out here. And you had another guy say, oh, you know, I, I, I think the spirit is, is, is leading me to tell you that you're called to pastor over here in, I don't know, Mississippi somewhere. And so he had like four or five different callings of the spirit, quote unquote. Um, but again, we know that the spirit um, does not contradict itself, right? The spirit has revealed what he has revealed and we have it canonized in the word, right? So that we don't have that kind of confusion today. We can look at what was spiritually inspired and find direction. And so again, what it means to be led by the spirit is to flood your mind with that which the spirit has already inspired and be led by that, right? And, and even the spirit's work actively now is constantly pointing you back to the scripture, right? Uh, John 16, 13a, just the beginning part of that, I'll read it. It says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, right? You see the work of the spirit? That's its purpose. And with that said, we know that the spirit will reveal from his word, what does the word do when it's being preached to you? It reveals all truth, which includes the truth about us, right? Sometimes... Uh, I think I'm the best singer in the, uh, in the bathroom when I'm alone. But when tested by truth, sometimes that doesn't, uh, it's not quite true. Um, sometimes I think I'm the best at many things. And when, when tested by, by objective truth, I come to realize, well, I'm not the best at that. I thought I was, but that's because I was isolated in my bathroom. And I had no audience who, who really uh, wanted to give me the truth. But again, uh, the spirit will reveal from his word to us all truth, which, in, which includes truth about us, our sin, and our need for Christ. Our sanctification is going to inform us on our sanctification. It would lead us to sanctification. And also, truth about the nature and character of God, the one whom we worship. The Spirit leads us to that. Now, going back to the main point, our fellowship with God is disrupted when we sin. Being that our sin is a way that we grieve the Holy Spirit, when we do so, this is what happens when we, when we sin and we grieve the Holy Spirit. When we do this, we're basically choosing to disconnect from the Spirit's leading and shut down that which leads us to all truth and discernment in matters of godliness and spirituality. In other words, when we unplug from the source of all wisdom, the Holy Spirit, the source of all goodness and truth, and default into natural man, which is naturally hostile to God, what happens to us? Our thoughts become carnal and cloudy from the depraved conditions of the fall. And this affects our fellowship with God. You'll see yourself declining in prayer. You'll begin to feel a lack of interest in reading his word. And God's people will begin to annoy you. Worship service will, will, all the worship services will feel very long when you're grieving the Holy Spirit. 
And you'll find more comfort in isolation. Remember what I said, when I'm in the bathroom isolated, I think I'm the best. In singing, of course. But when you come into the community of God where the Holy Spirit is, with the people of God, and the word of God is there, you're more likely to see the truth about yourself. And what happens when you sin, uh, you tend to isolate yourself. And unfortunately, unfortunately, it is, these, it is in these conditions that many Christians make bad decisions, right? Many Christians have left the church in these conditions when they've grieved the Holy Spirit. They thought they were making a wise decision. Many, many Christians have caused divisions among the people of God in these kind of conditions or reacted negatively towards others in these kind of conditions and even fallen into uh, grave, you know, horrendous sins in these kind of conditions. And my advice to you all is that whenever you find yourself in these kind of conditions, it's probably best that you withhold from speech, right? And withhold from making decisions. Because we as Christians should fear any move or any action that is not led by the Holy Spirit of God. And, uh, and of course, the Holy Spirit of God is who leads us to his word and also to the good counsel from our elders and brings us back to his people and reminds us again, man, I was foolish yesterday, but now when I enter into the courts of God, uh, my mind is collected again. And I'm reminded of the goodness of God. Let's read a verse that speaks clear to this. Romans 8, 6 through 14. Romans 8, 6 through 14. If someone has to just read it out loud. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who was raised who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Amen. Yeah, so in this passage we see that see what qualifies one as God's people, right? Uh, is one who has the Holy Spirit. But you also see that we are called not only to be assured of salvation, but to live by the Holy Spirit and not by the flesh, which is the root to sin and death. I like what uh, the Westminster Confession says about this in uh, chapter 11, section 5. It says this, and I quote, Although they never can fall from the state of justification, yet they may by their sins fall under God's fatherly displeasure and not have the light of his uh, countenance restored unto them until they humble themselves, 
confess their sins, beg pardon, and renew their faith and repentance. That's a, a passage uh, in chapter 11 from the Westminster Confession. So even though our justification is unchanged when we sin, we fall under God's displeasure until we humble ourselves. This, this is what happens when we sin. And many times, because of our pride, God may have to discipline us to remind us of our need for him. And he does this because he loves us. He his discipline is an act of grace on us, right? It's a form of keeping us uh, in the covenant. And he does this to the unbelie he does not do this to the unbelieving world, but he does this with his elect, with his people, uh, because he is treating us like sons. And this is true to what it says in Hebrews 12. I'll go ahead and read it. Uh, Hebrews 12, 7 through 10. It says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which you have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respect them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they discipline us for a short time, as it seems best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. So if God didn't care about us, he would leave us and give us over into our sin. But when you come to Christ and you're unified with Christ and you are a believer, you are not placed on the side of God's anger and wrath. You're placed on his grace. Now, in that, in that uh, condition, now that you're saved, when you do sin, many times God has to discipline you to keep you in line, right? To keep you so that you may share in his holiness. And that's the benefit of being part of his family. When we do suffer trials, it's only because God loves us, right? Now, for the unbeliever, when they suffer uh, trials, and if they're not elect, if God has no plan of salvation for them, all suffering and all things, like Romans says, is, is God's wrath being revealed from heaven. So a few points to remember. When a believer sins, we do not lose our standing before God. Yet we grieve the Holy Spirit and disrupt our fellowship with God and with others. So again, it affects our relationship with God, but the way that we interact with others, especially the body of Christ... It's affected. And you, if you've experienced times where you felt that you were dealing with sin, you might, you might understand the reality of what happens when you try to fellowship with other believers. You feel shameful. You feel you want to separate yourself. You feel that the church doesn't understand you. You know, things of that nature. But again, um, it, it affects your relationship with God and it affects your relationship with others. If our goal is to grow in increasing fullness of life until the day we die, and pass into the presence of God in heaven, to sin, when you sin, is to do an about face and begin walking downhill away from the goal of, of likeness to God. It is to go in the direction that leads to death, according to Romans 6.16. It's going in the direction of eternal separation from God, which is the direction which you were rescued from in, in the first place. In other words, when you sin and you, desire, you, you start to desire the things that are opposing God, you're basically walking backwards and, and going towards what Christ has saved you from. It, it's completely absurd. Yet this happens to all of us. 
Now, with the time I have left, uh, let's look at point number three. And this one's pretty short. Um, point number three is the danger of false conversion. And I thought this was important to address uh, since we're talking about um, the fact that we don't lose our justification. Uh, point number three, the danger of false conversion. There is a danger that comes along with the fact that when a genuine Christian sins, they don't lose their salvation or adoption in God. And the danger that often comes with this is the danger of false converts. There needs to be clear warnings that mere association with a church or an outward conformity to accept certain Christian patterns of behavior does not guarantee salvation. So, you know, you feel happy with a, with a group of Christians, you like the church, you like the way that they do things, that doesn't guarantee that you're saved. You start to follow the patterns, you say amen after every punchline from the preacher, and you think that you're, you're part of the church, and that doesn't guarantee salvation, especially in the U.S., where it is still normal for many people to call themselves Christian, there is a real possibility that many people will associate themselves with God's people, yet they're really not born again. And so, again, the question is, how do we distinguish God's true people from the false sheep? Well, unfortunately, God doesn't mark his people with a, with a highlighter on their forehead. Right? We can see him from far. However, the scripture does tell us that they will be known by their fruit. And I'll read this passage just for the sake of time. Matthew seven fifteen through 20 says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruit. So if, if, if such people that you see continue in more and more disobedience to Christ in their pattern of life, we as the church should not be complacent in giving them assurance of salvation. We must discern when it's a believer who is simply in need of assurance and a reminder of the gospel, or when we're dealing with false converts who need to be warned of hell. And we ought to call them to repentance and faith in Christ. A consistent pattern of disobedience to Christ, to Christ uh, coupled with a lack of elements of the fruits of the Holy Spirit, is a warning signal that the person is probably not a true Christian that there probably has been no genuine heart change from the beginning and no regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus warns that many people will believe that they are saved, yet God will say to them in the judgment, right? He'll say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You see that in Matthew 7, 22 through 23. Therefore, a long-term pattern of increasing disobedience to Christ should be taken as evidence to doubt that the person in question is really a Christian at all. Again, we will know them by their fruit. Uh, conclusion. For those of you who have trusted in Christ, yet have fallen in sin, be encouraged by what the scripture says in Romans 8.1, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So when you feel down, when you feel that you've sinned against God, 
preach to yourself the truth of the gospel. Repent from your sin and embrace the grace of God purchased for you by the blood of Christ. And when you partake in the Lord's table, make it be a reminder of Christ and his covenant faithfulness to you. When you take that bread, may you remember the grace of God, that you have forgiveness in Christ. That, that's for the believers, right? And, and, and when you take the, the bread and when you take the, uh, the juice, may it be a reminder that what God has declared in heaven, not even your sins can change. That's good news. If it was up to us, we'd lose our salvation the moment we become a Christian. Now, for those of you who had made a profession of faith but have no concern for your sin and live a life secretly following the desires of the flesh, a double life, man may be fooled, but God is not tricked. Consider your way and repent from your sins. Jesus can change your heart and give you a desire to love his law, his word, his people. And he can give you a desire to love him, most importantly. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this uh, study. Lord, uh, I pray that uh, you would use it for your glory, that you would serve um, this teaching uh, for the sake of the saints, Lord, here that are present, um, that it would be a seed unto more um, fruit that would bear uh, eventually, Lord, in your timing, Father. I ask that you would help us to be humbled by your gospel, help us to uh, realize that um, your gospel, the good news, the salvation that you have given to us through Christ is something that's a gift and that our flesh wants to pay for it. We want to make our deeds known to men. We want to um, exalt ourselves by working our salvation. But we realize that um, your gospel humbles our pride and makes us realize that we cannot do anything to obtain it. Um, but the hardest part is to recognize that we're in need of it. And Lord, we just ask that you would remind us of that every day, that we need your gospel, that apart from it, we have no chance of standing before you, a holy God. And Father, for anyone here who struggles with secret sin um, or, or has not confessed their sin before you and lives as if he does not, I pray that you would humble his heart, that he would see the goodness of the gospel and trust uh, in, by faith alone in the work of Christ and not his own uh, working. And Father, I just pray that you prepare our hearts, Lord, for the worship uh, for this Sunday, Lord, that you would be exalted in praise. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.